Thanks, Len. So first of all, I want to invite you, if you are feeling like the sun is bearing down on you and you want to make a shift in position, this is probably the right time to do it um, as we get started with the sermon. I know it doesn't look like any clouds are going to save us for the next 30 minutes, so uh, now's the time to, to make a shift, and that is perfectly okay. So Psalm 15 is one of our shorter psalms. In fact, it probably is the shortest one we're going to do in this series. And uh, But I, I wavered between two different titles. So one of them is the second is like it, and you'll see what that is referring to soon. Um, the other one, and this is probably the one I've sort of settled on, is, is who may dwell in your tent? And in Psalm 15, we're, we're, we're hearing the question raised. Who will God let live in his house and be included as part of his people? In other words, what does God want? From his people, from those who, you know, the who've given themselves to him. So I want to start with asking, who would you let live in your house? We uh, we have a friend named Yushin, and he is a Chinese international student at Muskingum University down there where we were, and uh, we signed up to be uh, a friendship family for the international students, which meant that. We would um, have uh, have Yushin over for dinner, you know, maybe once a month, or take him to Walmart to help him get stuff, and just be a you know nearby family that can help with some of the stuff that the international struggle with. And uh, and then something happened. Weirdly enough, there was a bomb threat at the university, and so they kicked everyone off campus. Now all the American students had a place to go. You know, they they either their own house or a friend's house or something but here you had a bunch of students from other countries who had nowhere to go so we ended up with with Yushin and a group of other friends who spent the night at our house and uh, that was interesting and we got to know them a little bit there and it was all Chinese students but I think one was from Japan um, and and then a little later so that it was only one night no big deal but Yushin had a problem he, he didn't want to go back to China. It's, it's really expensive to fly back for, for Christmas break. And it, it, the, no one else was staying on campus, it seemed. So he asked, is there any way, would we be open to the idea of him staying at our house for four weeks for the winter break? We had to think about that one. And uh, we decided to, to say, I mean, you shouldn't seem like a great kid. So we said yes. And um, for the next five years, he spent... Christmas winter break with, with the Reeds and we got to know him um, he you know he would cook Chinese food dishes for us sometimes we would uh, he ended up going with us to Christmas Eve services even though he wasn't a believer um, we did all kinds of stuff together eventually I, I planned a mountain climb up down in the Smoky Mountains took him and a, another student and some people from my church and we hiked this great mountain had a great camping trip so things like that, and we'd have deep conversations about life and morality, and I had to learn like a different mindset as we talked and talked about faith and all kinds of things. And it was really fun to go see his graduation a few years ago, where uh, he walked walked the uh, whatever they call that. Anyways, he got a diploma. 
Um, his last name starts with a Z. He was like the last student to walk through, though I think there were three Zhangs. You know, that was the. Uh, so, so, anyways, for a time, he lived in our house and was effectively included as part of our family at, at those seasons. Psalm 15 is built around that one question Who will God let live in his house and be a part of his family? And then that's verse 1. Verses 2 to 5 is the answer. A bunch of statements that answer that, that one question. So verse 1, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Those are actually the same question. The way Hebrew poetry works is it would give two parallel statements that are very similar to one another that are effectively asking or saying the same thing. And so the sacred tent refers to the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the tent of worship. Before they built a temple, which Solomon, David's son, would build, they had the tent of worship. And it was set up like the, the temple would eventually be, but that's where you would go to, to worship the Lord. That's where they would go for sacrifices. That's where God's tent, God's presence would dwell in the Ark of the Covenant. And then the second part, who may live on your holy mountain? The city of Jerusalem was built upon Mount Zion. So that's just a reference to living in Jerusalem as part of God's people. Who will live in the house of the Lord? Who will be a part of God's people? And so verses 2 to 5, we see the answer. Um, before we look at the individual answers, I want to step back and consider what they all have in common. They all have to do with how a person acts towards others and how they live within their community. So it, it's making a clear statement. It matters to God how you treat other people. Now you may be looking at me and saying, yeah, we know that. Like That's, that's an obvious thing. But it wasn't obvious in the ancient world. The, the pagan religions did not worry too much about how you were in your dealings with others. They didn't tell you to love other people um, as the Hebrew scriptures would do. Mostly the pagan religions, it was very important to show respect to the gods. You know, you had to, to build them a temple and give them proper offerings. As long as you did that, you could, you could treat the people around you however you wanted. That was not important. But the God who revealed himself in scriptures, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of, of Abraham, he cared about how we treat one another. God wants those who are his people to live and act differently than the rest of the world. So that's the first thing I think we see when we look at him. So let's look into the specifics. And I think there's six things that matters to God about how you live your life. And the first one is your walk. The walk meaning how you live your day-to-day -day life out in the world. The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from the heart. To be blameless means no one can bring a charge against you. No one could go to the king and say, this person has done me wrong. They, 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 you know, so if you're blameless, they can't do that because you have acted rightly. 
To be righteous simply means you do what is right in your dealings with others. I also note how it, it, it says, speaks truth from their heart. That's more than just not lying. You, ever, you know how you can like say something that's technically true and still yet be deceptive? God wants us to not be deceptive, to not trick other people in how we say things and how we respond to them. So that's your walk. The second thing God cares about is your words. Whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others. So we see um, two ways to wrong others. Slanders and slurs. And I was trying to think, what is the difference between slander and slurs? Um, and as I, I did, I googled it, you know. But I also kind of put some thought to it. And, and to slander is to, to make a false statement against another person. It's an outright, you say it, it's not true, you know it's not true, you're falsely blaming or accusing them of something that's not, not there. A slur is more of an insinuation. You don't actually accuse them of something, you just sort of hint around at it, or you spread gossip, or you raise questions. You're intentionally hurting their reputation without outright slander. It might be true. How do I know? Um, it's not true. So, for example, the worst thing you could be in my area was a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. And so, you might accuse someone of rooting for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And when you know the Browns are truly the best team and this is going to be their year, right? <laughs> Am I offending people? Is, you know, is it the Buffalo Bills year, really? Right. So, you might slander someone by accusing them of rooting for the Steelers, but then, or you might cast a slur by saying, I don't know if they root for the Steelers or not, but I see them wearing a lot of black and gold in their clothes. You know, that's, that's the difference. But your words, how you treat your neighbors matters to God. The third one is your esteem. I had trouble coming up with the, the right word for this, but it, it says, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord. It's who do you lift up as worthy of praise, even as worthy of listening to? Do you celebrate a person who is awful to others, who slanders and slurs? Um, I, I get a sense in our broader culture right now that, that people who are on the radio or on TV, so many of them are truly vile in how they treat others, what they say about others. They will make stuff up. They will use slanders and slurs to promote their, their viewpoint. And they're honored for it. Among God's people, we should not honor those who are careless with the truth, who, who slam other people. And, and you're probably thinking about how you see that on the other side of the aisle from whatever aisle you're on. Um, but you... We have trouble seeing it on the on our own side. When are the people who normally we would agree with, are we willing to, to to caution them when they start slandering and slurring, making accusations that are not true? God's people need to be careful with the truth. We need to, to honor those who fear the Lord, who do what's right. 
The fourth thing God cares about is your commitments. Who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. We are not an oath culture. I've, I've not heard too many people, you know, make oaths. Like, uh, you know, I swear by Grapthar's hammer, you will be avenged. You know, we, we don't go around saying that anymore. Um, but the, the culture and the ancient world very much was an oath culture. And, and Jesus brought this one up on the, the Sermon on the Mount. And I think that's why we've kind of avoided formal oaths nowadays. He said, don't use an oath to try to convince people you're a truthful person. He says, if you want to convince someone that you are truthful, do what you say you will do. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Keep your commitments. If you say you'll do something, do it. If you can't live up to it, don't even say you'll do it in the first place. That's what this is about. The fifth one is your compassion. Who lends money to the poor without interest. I can picture in the ancient world maybe farmers living side by side. And one had a tough year the year before. And they don't have enough money to buy the seed to plant for that year. And so a neighbor who, who's, who's right and good loans them enough to buy the seed so that they can plant. And then when the crop comes in for the next year, the, the, uh, their neighbor could, could pay back and thereby hold on to their dignity. That's what I'm envisioning this, this saying. You know, don't take advantage of your neighbor's struggle to get rich even further causing interest. I don't necessarily think this applies to modern banking. It's not about that or even how to run a business. It's really asking, are you willing to show compassion and care for those around you when they're in need? In some way responding to them and not just writing them off. The sixth thing God cares about is your integrity. Who does not accept a bribe against the innocent? Are you honest in your dealings in work and society? God knows our secrets. He knows the intent of our hearts. Are we going to be honest in how we respond to people? So I've noticed something as a preacher. That when I have something I'm saying, something will happen that week that, that tests it for me. And God gave me a little test this week. So um, when we moved, the the movers who had packed our fancy TV broke it. Like it got shattered, useless. And so we got money to get a new TV, um, thankfully. So I, from a local retail institution, I ordered a TV online for, for pickup. And uh, we ordered it. We went to pick it up. Um, that seemed a little chaotic in the pickup, but, but that worked. Well, the next day I get an email saying, do you still want the product that you ordered? I'm like, well, I picked it up. So I ignored that email. Three days later, I got an email saying, all right, we see that you don't want it. We've canceled your order, and they refunded my money back. I'm like, woohoo, yeah. And then that conscience kicked in. This, this, I, I don't know if I, was, if I wasn't preaching on this. Maybe I wouldn't have even thought of it. But I'm like, I have to tell them, don't I? And so I did. I got online and did chatted with one of the representatives and said, oh, by the way, actually, I ordered this. I, I actually picked it up. And he looked up the order number and said, 
well, I don't know what to do about that. You don't have to pay it back. Yes. So I passed the test, right? But barely. I, I tell you, friends, I was this close. But, but God will put those kind of tests in our life to see that do, does our integrity or does money matter more to us than our integrity, than our honesty in those kind of situations. Um, those six things matter to God in our life. Those six things matter. And it ends with one simple line. This, I love how short Psalm 15 is. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Think about what that's promising. It's not saying everything will go light well in your life, but it is saying you are putting yourself in the right foundation for good things to happen, that you'll be able to face the, the struggles in life. In fact, it's, I think it's the same thing Jesus gives at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. If you want a homework assignment, I invite you to do this. Compare Psalm 15 and go read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And see how many common themes there are between this psalm and what Jesus teaches about how to follow the Lord, how to follow the law. And Jesus ends that Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7, with a, a story about a man who hears his word, and it says he's like a man who builds his house on the rock. And such a house can last through the storms. It's built on a good foundation. It's that same idea. That when we follow what God says, we put our life on a good foundation, and it will not be shaken. So how do we think about this today? How much, in a sense, of God's Old Testament laws apply to us? That is something that Jesus talked a lot about. How, what does God want from his people now? He put it in terms of what... What, you who follow me and put your faith in me and follow me, what is, what is he expecting of us? And that was actually one of the big arguments between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day is what it meant to follow the law of God. The, the opponents of Jesus, the Pharisees, they would have looked at Psalm 15 and said, what says, who may dwell in his holy tent? And they would say, we can dwell in his holy tent. Because we, we keep the law in specificity, and they were so strict in how to follow the law, they made up more laws so that they could follow the law. And they added on to things to, to, to make sure and all this stuff. And Jesus came along, and he, he looked in the men in the eye and said, you guys are missing the point. You've made the law of God a burden that no one can live up to. You, you put this burden on the shoulders of, of regular people, and, and it keeps them from God. In fact, you're not even able to live up to it. You just pretend to live up to it. That was one of the main accusations Jesus had of, of the religious leaders, that the law was a burden that kept people from God. And so that's what we're seeing in Matthew 22, when Jesus is, is, is in a sense, in a, a the argument with his opponents. And one of them, one of the Pharisees, comes to him. He's an expert in the law, a lawyer. So he knows when they say law, they mean God's law. And he, so he tests Jesus with a simple question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? 
What does God really want from us? And Jesus said it simple. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The point of the law, the point of God's word, is not to put distance between God and his people, but to teach people how to love God. I know sometimes, especially if you're new to it, and maybe you're here and you're, you're just trying to figure out the Bible and church and all that stuff, and there are things in here that can get confusing. Hard to know what it's saying. But I want, to, I want you to know that when you, when, you, when you grasp what's going on in the scriptures, it is God guiding people into a love relationship with himself. That's what God is working towards. He's dealing with people who, who are up. And so we see some terrible things happen in the Bible and stories about battles and fights and all that. But his goal, what he's communicating, is how we and God might know and love one another. That's God's plan for our lives. So that's the first point. But, but what we see in Psalm 15 is there's, there's a, a corollary, a second part to this. And so Jesus answered the, the question, right? What's the first and greatest commandment? He goes on, he says, the second is like it. Now, what does that mean? Just to say that. It means it's saying, you can't do the first unless you are also doing the second. Right? You can't do the first unless you're also doing the second. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, on these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. Jesus taught that in order to love God, we have to learn how to love the people around us. So three points I want to make. First of all, what I've just said, the law was meant to teach us how to love God and love others, because those go hand in hand. Um, now, people in our world today might say, do you really need to be taught how to love people? Isn't love natural? No. No, it's not. It is not natural to love. Not center ourselves and look at the interest of others. That is, goes against the grain of our inner being. That only comes by God's spirit at work within us. And the Old Testament laws were meant to get us started, to show us the way. Um, now sometimes they might seem kind of dated, like this one. If you see your fellow Israelites donkey and ox fallen on the road, do not ignore it. Help the owner get it, get it to its feet. I've never encountered my neighbor's ox or donkey along the road. I did actually run into a stray horse once, but that's that's another matter. Um, but so how would that? that this, this seems irrelevant to me. But but God can guide us how that applies in our life. It might mean if someone is is uh, stuck in the snow bank uh, in the middle of winter when you're wearing your nice clothes that you forget about, you know, your good clothes, you get out and help help shovel or push them out, right? Does that ever happen in upstate New York? Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Um, but, but either way, there's wisdom in this. That's what God wants to teach us how to do. The second point I want to make is the Lord will lead us to love those outside our circle. 
realize actually that we, we put a lot of value on Matthew 22 and, oh, Jesus is so wise. He said, love God and love others. That was not new information to his listeners. Both of those commands are quotes from the Old Testament. Both of those are ones his opponents would have agreed with. Um, love God with all your heart, soul, mind. That comes from Deuteronomy 6. The Jews would have said that like every day in their, their, their liturgy. Um, love your neighbor as yourself is in Leviticus. That was a key part of the law. But you know what they did disagree over? Who's my neighbor? That's where the real action was. The Pharisees would have said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Did we not read last week in Psalm 139? Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? You know, they could take a verse like that and say, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And they would have defined their neighbor as anyone who was a fellow Israelite, a fellow Jew, where they would have said, but you need to hate the Romans, or even worse, the Samaritans. So what did Jesus do? He told the story of a Samaritan who showed compassion and mercy to a Jewish man who had been beat up and left by the road. In other words, the Samaritan acted as a good neighbor and loved, his, loved, the, loved the Jewish person. So he, he, that's where he's talking about. Now, the Pharisees were actually the liberals of their day. The real strict people were the Essenes. They would have said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. These, the Essenes was a group that, that couldn't get along with anyone, so they moved out into the desert, and they built a whole little community out in the desert. But we know about them because they put their documents inside of uh, pots, and it's because of the Essenes that we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have copies of the Bible that date back from the same time as Jesus. And they would have said, to love your neighbor means to love your fellow Essenes, but you need to hate those other, other Jewish people who are not Essenes. In other words, they would have hated the Pharisees. So they would have agreed with love your neighbor, but it's who they define the neighbor as. But if we follow Jesus, he's going to increase our circle of those that we're called to love. Like I said, he told the story of the Good Samaritan. He also would just ask questions. He said, if you love those who love you. What are you doing that's worthy of a reward? Don't even sinners love those who love them back? He says, if you're friendly to those who are friendly back to you, what are you doing that's that's of any note? Don't even the pagans, the Romans do that? He says, if you want to be like God, if you want to be part of God's people, you need to love your enemies and even bless those who persecute you. If we follow Jesus, the longer we follow him, the more he's going to lead us to love people who are outside of that natural circle that's easy to love. He's going to lead us to love people who are difficult, who challenge us. The last point I want to make is that honest prayer can empower followers of Christ to put love into action. Prayer can lead us to change us to see how we see ourselves and how we, we see others. I think a, a psalm like Psalm 15, we can go through that list. And Lord, how am I doing at these different, different topics? You know, I want to dwell with you. I want to be a one of your people. I want to follow you. And so as we come to the Lord in prayer and, and the, the scriptures lead us into prayer, it can change our ability to, to respond to others. I think so often we, we think of prayer and we come to prayer with, Lord, help me. 
Lord, heal me. Lord, protect me. We're either praying that for ourselves or maybe another person. And, and it is not wrong to pray any of that. In fact, we're supposed to bring those things to the Lord. That, it's okay to do that. But, but you need to know God has a greater agenda for your life. Prayer, who sets the agenda for your prayer time? Is it just your needs? Or do you allow God to set the agenda? And in his agenda, he wants his people to learn to become experts at how to love others. The world thinks loving others is easy because they don't really know what love is. They confuse love and sex and fluffy, warm feelings and butterfly kisses and just being nice. They get it all mixed up and loving others is all this vague idea. And so they think they're loving when they don't even know what love is. When we follow Jesus, we learn his ways. We build our life on the rock that is his words. We need to come and pray because he's going to have something to say to us. He's going to start to speak about how we are putting this into practice. So I want you to think about the sixth thing. Your work, your words, your esteem, your commitments, your compassion, and your integrity. Those are six areas that God wants to speak to you about how you're, how you're living those out. Here's the good news. Philippians 1.6. 1, 6, 1, 6. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He begins a good work in you the minute you say, Lord, I trust you with my life. He begins to work on those areas of our life. He begins to speak into them and show us new things. So my question as we close, and I'll give you a minute to even meditate on this. Out of those six areas, which one do you need to hear most from God? Which one does God want to speak to you right now? Your walk, your words, your esteem, your commitments, your compassion, or your integrity. Why don't you even just circle which one and invite God to speak to you? Take a minute before we finish in our worship time. Let's pray.